Coming at you live from the world's greatest podcast. <laughs> I mean, if we say it enough, one day it'll be true. But... <laughs> number one on iTunes. <laughs> First ever. One day. No, number one Stranger Things podcast. Yeah, there kids. we go. Right? That's, uh, well, I feel like that's... five, right? <laughs> there aren't that many. I was surprised. This is Stranger Still, a modest podcast coming at you from Montreal, Quebec. And you're listening to part two of our final episode exploring season one of Stranger Things. We talk about Hopper's heroism, Steve Harrington's hair, and ask, what can we learn from a bunch of kids? So let's get right to it. So yeah, we've given the kids their due. um, And I think we'll come back to them in the metaphysical moment a little later. But for chapters six and seven... I think we really start to see Hopper um, come together. And it's it's so hard to separate your, you know, after you've seen three seasons of the show and you've been with the characters for a while, like how how do you track their development? But I, I never quite noticed in season one how little of Hopper's motivation we really understand until the end. Mm. till the very end of of the season and one thing that really stood out to me is when they are figuring things out um visiting eleven's mom terry ives and kind of getting the whole picture of the conspiracy and what's gone on at the lab and you know stealing the children things like that um when they leave hopper's in the car with joyce and I don't have the I don't have the line that prompts uh, his response here. I think I think Joyce is sort of reckoning with the fact that you know Terry Ives has waited twelve years to find her daughter, has never found her daughter. She's sort of grappling with could could she wait twelve years? Could she look she could she look for Will for twelve years? Um, and sort of that's weighing on her. But then Hopper tells her, "Do you know what I would give for a chance?" you know what I would give. Mm. And there's no context to that. doesn't explain it. But we know from the context of the show that, you know, he's talking about his daughter, right? He's talking about these whispers about uh, what's, what's happened and sort of the, the pain that he carries and stuff. And then that just paints the picture of everything he's done before and after sort of that moment you understand that, that that's the motivation, mm. right? That he, he lost someone too. And that's, she's gone to a place where he can't get her back. Mm. Right. And so there's still hope for Joyce and Hopper won't. He's like vicariously pursuing that hope for her because he can't for himself. And the alternative is just, you know, descent into, well, where he's been before, right? So there's depression and self-medication. So this, he's not going to, not going to give up. It seems like there's a, a nice little parallel to be drawn as well in the, the evil, the monster that the show presents, the Demogorgon, and that we haven't, you know, we've caught glimpses of it. We've not really been completely fully exposed to it. A lot of movies do this and a lot of shows do this where the, the, true size and scope and evil of the character is hidden to kind of give an element of mystery, which is great. Um, 
And I think the the same thing is done here. And what's what's beautiful about it is that it's mirrored in Hopper's relationship to his daughter. In that, it's in those moments before Joyce, you know, they've entered the Upside Down. They they're looking for Will. They're trying to find him, calling his name, and the parallels between Will's circumstances in the Upside Down and Hopper's daughter's circumstances as she's dying and as he's holding her as he's going through this. The true evil of the monster is revealed and the true nature of the desperate sadness that it is to lose a child is revealed in, in the same kind of parallel moments as, mm-hmm. you know, the kids as a party are dealing with this beast and Hopper and Joyce are dealing with this, you know, well, Hopper specifically with, well, both really with this emotional overwhelming, oh my goodness, this child is about to die. We have to save his life. And then. Hopper's thinking, my child died. I couldn't save her life. Yeah. Oh. Like that whole sequence is like it, it never it never fails to to move me. Mm-hmm. And I actually I don't often rewatch like the whole season all at once when I when I do tend to rewatch it. And it's almost like I'm afraid that those last few sequences will like lose their their emotional power for me yeah. i kind of don't want to revisit it too often because i just find it so it's yeah it's just so powerful like you said right there's that that juxtaposition of the the loss that he can't undo and the potential loss right in front of them mm-hmm. but, the, but the hope that it doesn't have to be that way right it doesn't have to end how it ended before and then you have the kids right actually doing battle with uh, with that evil, right? The the manifestation of that uh, that evil, and it's uh, oh, it's, it's a simple it's a simple parallel of you know present evil represented in a beast mm-hmm. and psychological despair or potential despair, and, and then you've you've seen, and that's what I really appreciate about how the show addresses such a grave, serious, awful sadness is that they they really save it until the right moment to shine a full light on the horrible awful sight that it is to see a child with cancer dying and and you have this terrible you know the two parents just back helpless watching as you know is their kid going to make it or not mm-hmm. and uh it's simple and yet it's so tastefully and, and appropriately done that it really you connect with it on every level you can feel just with the time as well that you've spent with the characters so far. Yeah. Um, and especially kind of dwelling on the mystery of Hopper's gone through some stuff. We don't know exactly what, but he has, yeah. and it's really affected him. And they really, they built that character so well. It's so properly arced that when it comes around, you know, it, it could have easily been a, uh, a, well, okay, we're just going to give Hopper some bad past mm-hmm. and you know, he needs an arc. So, He'll be redeemed in the end. We just want him to be a little dark and mysterious. Right, right. But the fact that it's so integrally tied to the main plot mm-hmm. is just so, it makes it so stirring and, and impactful. And really like the, the pain that he carries is what ends up being what, what makes him able to do what he does. And it's, you know, that's not a comfortable or a, a nice thing to observe right it's not like it's it's not a superpower but 
his his grief for his daughter is what enables him to to go the extra mile for Joyce, to go the extra mile for Will, and and like the hope that that motivates that, right? Or just the the wanting to push the darkness away. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that's that's what I think of when I think of Hopper. I just think of someone just doing all that they can to light candles in the in the darkness and he just does that in his you know his very un ungraceful very gruff sort of you know police chief way uh brushing his teeth with his beer and all that but um but that's that's what shines through i think in the end the you know what i would give which you quoted earlier which mm-hmm. to have one more day with my daughter it's that same emotion which motivates him to go the whole nine yards with with Joyce and finish it out to the end. And in the end, uh, experience a redemption for her that he couldn't have for himself. And yet, uh, and yet experience the joy of a, a mother being reunited with her child. It's, uh, it's so powerful. Yeah. I think it's, uh, you know, it's terrible things had to happen to make that amazing thing possible. Mm. And I think that's, that's the whole, that's the trade off with anything, right? It's always, if there's no no cost, um, then the reward at the you know the end of the story, the end of anything, um, doesn't always carry the same weight. Switching gears, though, you mentioned redemption there, and uh, there is no clearer redemption arc in Stranger Things, or maybe in modern storytelling. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure. But when you say redemption, I think Steve Harrington. Steve. Steve Hare. <laughs> Steve the Hare Harrington. Oh, man. That guy. You know, I, and I've mentioned this to you multiple times before, but I still, you're right. Uh, in terms of, uh, I don't know what to call a literary device, uh, in terms of uh, a storytelling device, having Steve literally washing his sins away with the spray paint on the marquee yes. of the theater. It's, it's uh, yeah, you, you really see Steve go about as bad as the popular high school guy can go uh in terms of smearing nancy and uh and just turning his back on anything pure and good and in a small town too right i mean a small town you do something like that everybody knows everybody talks doesn't matter that she didn't she didn't do anything yeah she almost got eaten by a monster by a monster but you know doesn't mean that uh, the consequences wouldn't still come fast and hard for for her but uh but I mean, for first first thing he's got to do is he has to kind of do that one eighty and figure out that Tommy and Carol are no good, and he <laughs> figures that out. That's and that's you see it, and he's just like, yeah, you know what, you guys are terrible. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm pretty bad, but you guys, you guys are terrible. And it's that I also love that uh, it's a beautiful humility. I think the ultimate humility for Steve. Is that you know he's popular guy and Tommy and Carol are popular guy and girl, and Tommy just makes Steve submit. You know he's like, you know what, I wouldn't do that if I were you, because oh, yeah, you, you, you got beat up by Jonathan Byers. You couldn't take Jonathan Byers. And I don't think you want to do this, and so Steve just kind of has to tuck his tail between his legs and cower off. And and all of us, you know, who hate Steve at this point because Steve's just been horrible, are like, yes. Yes, almost cheering for Tommy, which is interesting. It's true, and I really think about the first, my first watch of of this of the show. That's definitely how I felt in that scene. Mm. Like, stick it to Steve, someone as 
low as Tommy yeah. is sticking it to Steve. And uh, of course you feel that feels good as a, as an audience, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this guy's getting what he deserves. He's getting lowered where he deserves to be, but then he just goes and surprises us, <laughs> right? He doesn't, he doesn't go get another girl. He doesn't go, I don't know, break into his dad's liquor cabinet or something. Steve goes to the movie theater and he asks to help wash off what not he didn't do it himself but he 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 approved it right the blood was on his hands the blood was on his hands all that spray paint <laughs> and he doesn't stop there man that yeah. but that could have been it right right that that could have been it and that would have been you know that would have been the nice little cap on on his uh, his story right they never would have had to go back to to steve again but uh not only does he do that he can't find nancy well i'm gonna go apologize to jonathan Oh. At the wrong time. Yes. yes. <laughs> I think my one of my favorite parts of that episode is Nancy pulling a gun on him to get him to leave. It's just <laughs> it's such a funny reaction. Like I'm trying to think of like a, a teenage you know girl and that or a guy any circumstance in that in that kind of situation and you know, you know this flesh eating monster is about to pour into your room that you're in that you've been prepping in order to trap mm. them in and then just the guy walks in you know the guy <laughs> you're like get out. Oh man. And he gets out. They, they, she chases him off, right? It's like chasing off a dog. You know, you're telling your dog to get lost because you don't want him to die. You got to throw rocks at him. She throws the rocks at him. He leaves. You know, you think, oh, he really is just a coward, you know, just looking up for himself yeah. until he's not, <laughs> until he's there with that bat. It's beautiful redemption. And he's just forever cemented in our hearts. <laughs> the bat wielding protector i will continue to go as steve for halloween for <laughs> for the next couple of years at least until the show you know when the show goes off the air maybe i'll stop yeah, that sounds fair <laughs> that sounds fair <sighs> it is it's it's a great scene and um i i i the cementing of jonathan and nancy and steve together and then you uh have the that kind of final battle um, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there, although it, that kind of draws their relationship to a, a narrative close, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. And it's like the, like we talked about, right? The, the interplay of the three different groups. Yeah. And, uh, and you see that in the last episode too, right? Everything is each action of each individual group has an effect on what happens to the other one. So Jonathan and Nancy making that stupid teenage decision to once again, not listen to what they've been told not do what they've been told, not do the safe thing. Um, they go and they try to get the monster. They try to lure the monster away, right? To make room for, for Hopper and, and Joyce. And, um, and then again, and then the kids, of course, you know, maybe save Jonathan and, uh, and Nancy and Steve, right? right? When they get uh, attacked at the school and Elle has to, you know, defend herself from all of those government agents and then the monster goes after them. Mm. And, uh, I mean, yeah, I don't even know what there is to say about uh, about that. It's, it's just, a great final action it's sequence. Pretty, that's pretty that's, self-explanatory. I mean, the, the she's not the monster. <laughs> <laughs> and with the, I think a, a nice way to tie off as well our our discussion on the innocence of the of the kids is when the movie tricks you into believing that the wrist rocket actually did something, <laughs> yeah. or the show, uh, I should say. And it, w- it um, was the monster killer. It was the it was the rock. Yes, too. It, it was the monster. It killer. was the one rock. Right. 
into its mouth and it gets blasted against the wall. But who's the true hero? Of course, it's it's Eleven. And uh, the the idea of of self sacrifice and you know I'm not the monster. I'm as powerful as I can be, but I'm I'm not the monster. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll take I'll go down with the ship and uh, and then that mystery that follows and a nice cliffhanging yeah. ending. Oh, it's uh, it's beautiful. It's mm-hmm. wonderful. And and honestly, the talking about the final scene, uh, Christmas dinner at the yeah. buyer's house. The when the upside down flickers in the bathroom when Will's in there alone, that absolutely terrifies me. <laughs> Just the the thought that that terrifying thing out there could appear anywhere, mm. right? So it was, it was this other thing, this alien thing, this thing somewhere over there, and now it's just a part of him. It's so unsettling, uh, the image of it. And it almost uh, reminds me of The Shining mm. uh, with uh, with Danny uh, you know, strolling through the halls of the old right, hotel right, right. And, and you have these flat, these flashbacks to terror. Um, that, but that kind of, that kind of imagery is used a lot where, and you're right, the, the thing that gets it, uh, that it really makes it as terrifying as it, as it is, is that he's just in the bathroom washing his hands and, yeah. and, and doing the most, you know, banal thing possible. And here safe it is. At home. Yeah. Yeah. Safe at home, you know, where you'd least expect it. I remember watching the movie Paranormal Activity for the first time. And the most terrifying scenes to me in that film still are, are when, it's the middle of the day and you know, there's no music and you still see those tents turning around corners of camera movement. And you're like, well, what's on the other side? There can't be anything. It's not nighttime. <laughs> it's not nighttime. It doesn't come out at night. <laughs> and it's still, it's like, Oh my goodness. No, not, not then. They're just trying to enjoy their lives. It's not safe. <laughs> it's never safe. It's not safe. Oh, all right. I think maybe it's time now for our metaphysical moment. Okay, so for our last metaphysical moment of season one, Aww. I know it's it's sad, but there there will be more. Yeah, there are, there are more seasons. There are more episodes. We have we have ideas, but uh, for our last one for season one, uh, I think the metaphysical moment we should well not, not a moment. I guess metaphysical theme in in this case we're gonna kind of bring things together, but uh, just childlikeness, right? The the idea of that special something that kids have that you know one and a half year old closing his eyes in the corner of the kitchen while you're playing hide and go seek or you know the the kids playing dungeons and dragons and figuring out somehow even though it doesn't make any sense that will is somewhere that's not here Mm -hmm. but is still somewhere right and and I think I mean, we've, we've touched on this a little bit, but just that there are things that we can learn from these kids. And, uh, and that's certainly part of the reason I keep coming back to the show is uh, I find them inspirational, right? Which is, should, should be kind of an embarrassing thing to say uh, for an adult man. But uh, I find these, you know, these kids pretty inspiring just the way that they uh they, they move about in the world and treat each other and treat other people uh, and how you know brave they are and it's uh, it's amazing 
And I think this really has something to do with that whole idea of childlikeness, right? Not childishness, but yeah. just being, having the quality of, of children. Yeah, the ability to look through uh, a scenario that an adult would just kind of walk away from. You know, just dismiss it, right? Just yeah. like this cynicism out of hand. We've talked before about Nancy's reaction specifically to Will's disappearance mm. and how she kind of is aloof, you know, it's sad. I'm, he's my brother's friend and he's, I know him. So, you know, I have a relationship to him and it's sad when kids go missing, but he probably just went to his family's house, like Hopper says. Or, yeah. He probably ended up here or there, and, and there's a logical explanation. There's a logical explanation. This happens. Yes. She's, she's seen this on the news before. She's aware of sort of the, the condition of the world. Right. And it's when she comes face-to-face with the Demogorgon, with the monster, mm. that she realizes the gravity of this. And yet, the kids have been ahead of her a long while before she figures this out. They're already just as worried about their friend as she is having confronted the monster for real. Um, there's almost a, a faith aspect of the, the kids knowing that this thing exists and yet not having been able to see it yet. They, they still move forward. They don't need the evidence. They just know. And so knowing their friend is gone and having these inexplicable things happen to them uh, I think that's the kind of thing that uh, that we as adults look on and admire, as well as the the purity of their relationship and and the the genuine kindness and yeah. human spirit within their nature. Yeah, definitely. And one one thing that I love about seeing the way they interact with the world around them is this sense that you get that they've been prepared for this, but <laughs> they've been prepared for this through their their games yeah. right they've been prepared for this through through their play right just the playing pretend mm-hmm. right what's the point of pretending well i think the point of that in in kids and the reason why you want to give you know kids good models and good stories right to stories to situate themselves in the world in is because that's how you practice who you'll become and what you'll do in in these situations and so they play at being heroes and that doesn't make them brave but it certainly primes them for you know what am i going to do when my friend goes missing when my when the party member is in danger well we're going to step up for him we're not going to stay home and protect ourselves because that would that would ruin the game first of all if you were playing you know, whatever, Dungeons and Dragons in this case, that's no fun. It's no fun and it's also it's also no good in a in a sense. Not not for Will, anyway. Yeah. Um so taking that risk, um, you know, playing at being brave in order to get ready to have to be brave. And uh and I love that. And it's just it's it comes up again and again in the series and um it's a it's a beautiful thing. And it doesn't it exists alongside sort of that real danger danger as the as they describe it right because they and they they know what's a game and what's not a game right it's not like this isn't some sort of weird uh thing where they're imagining all this stuff it's not these things are really happening right the danger is real um but there's this really strong suggestion that they've been training for this in a way right they're 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 ready for it um because of 
of the way that they, they play. And uh, there was a really good, yeah, speaking of like the, the, the faith aspect behind that, um, there's a wonderful quote that I really like from G.K. Chesterton, um, who's an old, big, big, fat, old English guy who's dead. Um, but The most uh, important English guy. He's just, I mean, he's great. You just Google image him and you'll just think, yeah, I would listen to what that guy has to say. <laughs> Um, but, uh, he, he was a kind of a champion of embracing childlikeness and uh, I wrote a few of his, his books and it's, uh, I just love how full of life this guy seemed. And he has this great quote where he says, um, that God is, is childlike and more childlike than we are probably. So he says that we have sinned and grown old and our father is younger than we. And he just uses that as, uh, in this illustration of God sort of making the sun rise every day and that's not that's not boring right we we get used to stuff things become familiar they become stale you know you've seen one daisy you've seen all the daisies but he says maybe God made all the daisies the same not out of necessity like it was easier you know using a cookie cutter but that he just loved daisies so much that he could make them again and again and again and uh, I'm sure you have experience with that with a one and a half year old oh, doing yes. things again. Oh, yes. Many books, many <laughs> books that I've read 50 or 60, 500 times. <laughs> and it's funny because uh, as in the example, the book evolves in how it's read oh, and in course. how it's experienced. Um, and, you know, my, my son will sometimes be more interested in the pictures or he'll be more interested in the story itself. Or sometimes recently he's gotten into the fact that some of the images are upside down. So he'll turn the whole book upside down to see the image right side up. Ooh. Upside down. I didn't even mean to make it. Oh, a, man. That, wasn't, that was not intentional. That's the <laughs> cheesiest reference you could possibly make. I promise you I accidentally stumbled upon that. Um, but it does work in the fact that, uh, that you know, I... I wouldn't have thought to turn the book upside down to see the bat who's hanging upside down, right side up. Uh, and yet it's that, that same kind of curiosity that leads to discoveries that we can't even imagine. We wouldn't want to imagine sometimes. Sometimes we revile the imagination because it's something that we don't understand. It's something that's unfamiliar to us, scary or, yeah. or embarrassing. And yet when we see uninhibited children moving through scenarios in which you know life throws them all sorts of curveballs as as happens in stranger things in the most extreme ways possible we look at that and we can smile confident that these children are much more capable of handling it than we as adults ever could be so yeah instead of i mean we're always trying to you know we're always teaching kids how they should do certain things or, you know, this is what we do in this situation. And, and a lot of that's good. You know, you gotta, gotta have some, some social norms. Um, you know, you, you, you put your clothes back on before going outside and things like that. Those are, those are good lessons, but I think uh, we can certainly probably start, we should start taking more cues maybe from, from children um, that we can you know apply in our own lives, but whether that's, you know, looking at things in a different way, um, ex, uh, you know, learning to enjoy repetition, um, finding the wonder and sort of seemingly 
mundane sort of boring things that, that make life well the things that usually make life possible or uh, enjoyable for other people but you know we kind of resent the the work involved uh, with some of those things um so i thought maybe the nice way to finish would be to think about the things that the kids from stranger things could teach us and could maybe teach uh, our listeners as well so we can sort of go through a few of them first one which of course i think everyone is familiar with is friends don't lie mm-hmm. right um and that seems that seems pretty basic but i think lying just becomes sort of shorthand in adulthood you don't tell the whole truth or you withhold information you don't have uncomfortable conversations because you don't you know you just don't say everything that needs to be said about a situation um you avoid unpleasant interactions and you know but friends don't lie mm. and i think that's a pretty good pretty good rule to uh to follow and uh, and the kids do a decent job of that mm. you know it's not always natural but when it comes down to it when you know when they ask each other about something specific you know, I, love, I love an l calls mike on this stuff right <laughs> he's uh he's painted himself into a corner uh over chocolate pudding about the snowball and uh you know he won't quite tell her why it's weird to go why why you wouldn't go to the snowball with your sister she tells him mike friends don't lie <laughs> tell me what you're feeling and uh, and he does not with words though yeah good on mike <laughs> what else what else do the kids teach us I, I think we we've touched on a good portion of it, but I, just the idea that that innocence is something that uh, leads us to more progressive and impressive actions, and and when the inhibitions are cast aside, uh, we can oftentimes be much more competent moral human beings than not. Um, one of the examples I was thinking of was, uh, oh, never mind, my mind just completely lit up. <laughs> well, it's like this this idea of counting the cost. I think, right, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, like what being childlike about right and wrong uh, would do, maybe for a lot of us, is you know just accepting that to do what's right in a given situation uh, will sometimes have a consequence or at the very least be uncomfortable right um and uh yeah the kids they just don't seem like very good at avoiding discomfort they haven't sort of built all of those automatic uh responses or you know you know when they're you know how they feel because they telegraph that yes (laughs) yes very clearly you know that that was what i was going to say earlier was is that um that when kids lie you can pretty easily tell um <laughs> it's it's not they're not really good at falsifying information because they haven't built up those barriers yet of necessity and trying to make things sound as natural as possible because they don't want to step on social toes takes practice uh, exactly i can think of an example of my my neighbor when i was very young who told me that his family had grown a pumpkin that was bigger than their house <laughs> and so i biked with him to his house to see and and he said well it's a little bit smaller you can't quite see it behind the house uh, and, and <laughs> you know, 
everybody knows he's lying. And yeah, as kids, you're just kind of like, oh, all right, you know, you just go along with it. But if there's a pumpkin that's maybe that big, you want to see it. Exactly. So you're not staying home. <laughs> you're, you're, you're getting on your bike. You're going to go see if there's maybe a pumpkin yeah. that's real huge. Oh. oh, yeah. So I think that's a good way to leave season one. Um, just remembering those kids who will not be very young in season four (laughs) (laughs) that is coming. Um, But uh, we will be wearing it for the long haul. Uh, We are going to talk about Stranger Things until there's nothing left to talk about. (laughs) Uh, And I don't think uh, we've exhausted ourselves just yet. No, of course not. I think uh, listeners can look forward to a few special episodes before we uh, start getting into season two. Episodes that I am very much looking forward to. Yeah, and we'll give you a bit of a, well, we'll just tell you uh, what the idea is. We're going to do some character breakdowns. So we're going to have episodes on specific characters sort of exploring their uh, their development. And we're not sure exactly how that's going to look just yet, but uh, know that there will be a hopper episode and or a joyce episode etc and a deep detailed look into steve harrington's hair care routine yes probably at least three special episodes on uh, steve's appearance his personality actually might be a separate podcast that we start uh, <laughs> just talking about steve's look in general oh what would we call that we're taking suggestions for a steve harrington podcast title that would be like the, the, the oh, just call it the hair Maybe the, the hair bears. <laughs> the hair. All right. That's, we're going to, I'm writing that one day. <laughs> That's it for season one, but it's not the end of Stranger Still. We're working on some in-depth character episodes, and there are plenty more weird and wonderful things to explore in Hawkins. Things can only get stranger, really. Oh, if you want to do us a solid, you can tell one friend about the show. That's it. And thank you for listening. Stranger Still is made in Montreal. It is produced and mixed by Matt Civico, that's me, and the music is by Zach Prater and Richard Poulin.